0: I don't even know what I'm going to talk about today. Um, Everything seems to have um, gone in about 20 different directions. What I might talk about is, what I might wind up talking about, if I'm lucky, is um, something that's focused, because uh, what I am is totally unfocused these days. It's been a couple of years now, actually three years, and um, almost exactly three years since I had... uh, uh, emergency open heart surgery, and I've never really been the same since then. Uh, it's possible that if you're a regular listener to me over many, many years, you can hear the difference. Maybe you can't hear the difference, but uh, certainly I can feel the difference from my end. Uh, I lost a sense of uh, direction, I lost a sense of focus, lost a sense of meaning, and I'm still struggling with that, still struggling with that, uh, trying to figure out. Who it is I'm talking to, why it is I'm doing this, um, and generally in my life, feeling the same way, Uh, feeling more isolated, less able to connect with people. And this is one way of connection. This is one way of connection. And I do get, uh, thank God, uh, for me these days, it's always a saving grace to get uh, emails from people. I love getting emails from people saying that they listen to me, that they caught up on a podcast, that some people listen on the same day. Because it's an odd thing. I used to do, I spent many years doing live radio. And, uh, in fact, most of my career doing live radio. It's a strange thing to be recording. This is on recording. And it's a strange thing because I know nobody's listening directly when I'm talking. And I have to imagine somebody who's listening. Who do I imagine is listening? You. <laughs> whoever whoever you are. Uh, if I think of the people who have written to me over the years and... Um, so I, I, I plug in those people, those names, people who have described themselves. I, I've asked people when they write in and tell me they like the show, where they live, what their opinion is. Are they married or are they not married? Uh, get some idea of the kind of people I'm speaking to and who it is that's, uh, that's listening to the words I say. So that's one thing is a, a disconnect that I've experienced over the last couple of years where I do uh, these shows on recording. And uh, missing that uh, that live connection, but I have, like I say, I have to imagine uh, a connection, and I do imagine this connection. Uh, what else? Uh, what else is going on? I've been so I've been struggling ever since this uh, open heart surgery with uh, terrible uh, physical uh, problems and psychological demons of the worst sort, fighting against myself, really, just struggling against myself. Um, and uh, t- this is a time, uh, this Christmas season, I know a lot of people have more troubles, uh, although it's a jo- obviously a joyous season for many people, and good for them, and I'm happy for them. But it's also a tough time, and this is a time when people struggle with, um, with a lot of depression, and they-, they struggle with a lot of anxiety. It uh, has to do, generally, with family. It has to do with family. It always goes back to family. It's this tremendous pressure of rituals and um, and um, getting together with family. And then, of course, as you get older, and I'm older now, and part of what I'll talk about today inevitably is probably um, mortality. As you get older, you um, you look back and you miss people who are no longer there. You know, people in the family who are no longer there. Um, so um, that's I think what causes people a lot of uh, difficulties they, uh, they measure their own growth They measure their own lack of growth By this ritual part of the year Christmas, this season of the year um, I, always, uh, I always liked Christmas I always liked Christmas Christmas was one of my favorite times um, uh, I, um, Though I was raised Jewish uh, Christmas was always something that that I especially liked, and there were reasons for that. And one reason was uh, the other day, for instance, I got I sent out one of the few um, Christmas cards that I was going to send out. Sent it to an old friend of mine, an old friend, a friend from childhood, and um, I received one uh, a couple of a couple of days ago from him and his wife. Uh, this uh, this friend of mine. We were best friends when we were kids. And that's one of the things about Christmas, too, is uh, you start thinking about the past. Um, So, um, as I say, so this friend of mine, I I mailed him. He's an old friend. In fact, he was my oldest friend. Not that I have seen him. I haven't laid eyes on this guy for, what is it now, for um, 50, could it be this long? 55 years. He was my best friend when I was a kid, and maybe, probably, the best friend I ever had spent, uh, except for one person um, uh, in the modern era, but this this guy was my first best friend and the best friend I ever had. Um, I'll try not to say his name, because that's not such a good thing, right, Uh, for the the public to know everybody's name. Uh, I think it's embarrassing for people and awkward, but... um, He was my best friend, and the reason I think about him during Christmas is because when I mailed the Christmas card out to him, I sent it to a place. He lives in Texas. He lives in a town, actually, in Texas, which is, uh, somebody wrote an article about religious fundamentalist towns in Texas and in the United States, and the place he lives in was considered one of the most fundamentalist religious places, Baptist, actually, uh, in the entire country. And this is where he lives with his wife and with his kids. And um, so I mailed him this Christmas card. And, uh, you know, I wrote Merry Christmas on it. There's all this stuff about uh, season's greetings and Merry Christmas. And people who are uh, religious Christians get uh, pissed off. They get very irritated when people say, Happy Holidays or season's greetings. (laughs) In an attempt to be neutral, an attempt uh, maybe not to offend people, uh, the um, you know the uh, the public officials will say seasons greetings or happy holidays, and there are cards that you can buy for people. And if you're sending a card to a religious person and you're religious yourself, well, then you know maybe there'll be a picture of uh, the holy family on it or a picture of. Um, uh, a nativity scene, you know a drawing or a photograph uh, of uh, of an actual nativity scene, so the cards vary in how uh, religious they are but uh, since I know that he and his family uh, are, and since I know that he always was, he grew up in an extremely religious family. Um, extremely religious family, I I don't mind stuff. What do I care, you know? Because I have a confused attitude and a kind of, to be generous, I suppose, an open attitude about the holidays and about Christmas. Um, I never excluded uh, one holiday or another or one religion or another. I was brought up a certain way. I was brought up a certain way, uh, which was um, uh, Jewish, and brought up particularly until until she died when I was fifteen by my grandmother, to uh, to actually to hate Christians, to hate Christians and Christianity. My grandmother, having come from Europe and having survived the pogroms in Europe, um, she had an attitude, uh, you know, and brought up by uh, by her mother and father, who also barely escaped with their lives. There was a whole attitude among a certain generation of Jews, uh, my grandmother's generation. These are the people who came over on the, uh, on the ships, uh, you know, around uh, the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century. That's when my grandmother came over. These people who escaped pogroms and centuries and centuries and centuries of violence against Jews um, and murders and rapes and theft and brutal anti-Semitic laws and torture and uh, forced conversion to other religions. So my grandmother had uh, an attitude about Christians and Christianity. Her attitude was basically, um, they are poisonous. They are the tools of the devil. They are anything. It's like kryptonite next to Superman. Just don't even associate with Christians. Don't even, I didn't even, when I was a kid, she had such an effect on me in some ways that I wouldn't even look at a church if I was. There were churches in my neighborhood and a couple of synagogues. It was a mixed neighborhood—about uh, maybe a third Jewish, uh, a third Catholic, and a third Lutheran and Presbyterian, basically, where I grew up. I wouldn't even look at a church. I felt that it was something bad was going to happen to me <laughs> if I looked at a church. That I would be—that uh, maybe some tentacle would reach out and grab me and pull me in and do some kind of awful ritual with me, and turn me into a Christian. Maybe they would uncircumcise me. <laughs> I don't know what I imagined. I don't know if I imagined that. Maybe that's in retrospect, uh, something I'm making up as I'm going along. But um, her attitude about Christians was, as I say, to put it mildly, uh, really bad, almost like poisonous. But uh it turned out that uh, there's nothing much she could do about it. And in a way, she understood that my best friend for several years when I was a kid, starting from when I was about 10 or 11 in the, um, in the sixth grade when I, when I first met this, uh, this boy, uh, up until the time I was 15, he was my best friend. And he came from possibly or probably the most religious Christian family in the entire neighborhood. Um, and we were incredibly close. We were incredibly close. And I say I haven't set eyes on him for 55 years. Um, his father, who worked for a national company that uh, sold wholesale cotton, uh, his parents were from down south. His parents, his father was from Texas, and his mother was from Mississippi. And they had uh, real thick accents. In fact, they're the only people in my neighborhood who didn't have New York accents. They had... Um, they had thick southern accents, which I found very exotic. So when he was fif when he was fifteen, when I was fifteen, we were both fifteen, actually he's about almost a year older than me. When he was sixteen and I was fifteen, he was um his father was transferred. To the company, the national company he worked for, transferred him to Boston, and my friend was gone. The first one of the first great losses, I mean, among other sort of Uh, traumatic losses in my life. Uh, Early on in my childhood, I had some traumatic losses. But to have a best friend just disappear, just to go away, was uh, one of the roughest things. And I still feel the reverberations of the loneliness I felt after he left. In fact, he died the same year. In fact, he died. My grandmother died. (laughs) died. Moving away is like dying. When somebody moves away, it's like they died. My grandmother died when I was 15, uh, right around the same time that my friend moved away. And uh, it was a tremendous loss that my friend moved, tremendous loss. Um, but when I say we were best friends, I mean we were really best friends. We spent almost every single day together. Um, typical day is uh, we, we'd, we'd go to school, we went to the same schools, you know, we went to the same um, junior high school, and we went to uh, we the same elementary school went to the same junior high school, and for one year when we were sophomores uh, when I was fifteen and he was sixteen, we went to the same high school and We would spend every like every school day we I would get over there in the morning and uh, we would uh, first of all I, I should describe uh, us uh, we were a strange, uh, odd couple. I was the shortest kid in my class when I was uh, 11 years old. I didn't start growing until I was around 13, and I was a shrimp. In fact, there was a class picture of me in the sixth grade, a uh, class picture in which I was in, in my sixth grade class, in which I was the smallest one in the class, including the girls, the smallest one in the class, including the girls. And he, although he wasn't in my homeroom, in, uh, in his school picture in the sixth grade, he was the tallest one, so he was uh he was extremely tall, I think he wound up being six three or six four something like that but when he was when we were kids, he was the tallest boy in the neighborhood and very athletic a very well built uh, kid uh, and extremely handsome. He was so handsome he was almost a little pretty, <laughs> but he was very very handsome and so here's this almost like godlike uh young godlike creature. And I was this little runty, short, uh, not un—you know—not unattractive looking. I mean, you know, bright and sort of maybe handsome in my own way, but a little runty kid, shorter than anybody. And here's this big, tall, athletic guy, and we—we we were friends. So we'd walk along, and um, people sometimes would remark on it. Uh, sometimes not too kindly, but sometimes just remark on the fact that uh, we were very much an odd couple. And also, I guess we were an odd couple because of his extreme religion, his family's extreme religion uh, in the Jewish neighborhood and me being friends with him. His family also found this disturbing. My grandmother found it disturbing. Uh, my my mother, my poor crazy mother, didn't find it disturbing because she wasn't paying much attention to what I did at all. But um, my the, the rest of my family found it a little disturbing, brought up to be... Um, these are people of Depression, World War II vintage, you know, like my aunts and other people of that age. Uh, found it somewhat disturbing because they were brought up also not to trust Christians very much. And they didn't, some of them were very parochial, did not have any Christian friends. Uh, in my neighborhood, uh, the Christians stayed with the Christians and the Jews stayed with the Jews, you know, a little bit like the way the city was. These people had all moved out to this suburb of Queens from the city. Uh, you know, from places in the Bronx and Brooklyn uh, and uh, Manhattan where the neighborhoods were fairly segregated. You know, there wasn't uh, where people stayed with their own. The Italians with the Italians, the Irish with the Irish, the Jews with the Jews, and um, Protestants with the Protestants. So they carried that with them when they moved out to Queens to this new neighborhood. And although people were friendly, they were neighborly, they didn't really spend a lot of close time together. So he and I we would spend every day together, and um, I'd go over there in the morning. Let's say when we were before we were walking to uh, to school. We walked about a mile and a half to high school, for instance. Uh, I'd go over there in the morning, and we'd play uh, right after I ate breakfast or grabbed something from my crazy house, uh, so I could get out of there as fast as possible. I'd go over to his house, and I loved going over to his house because he had a father, a mother. Uh, an older sister and a younger brother. He had a family. He had a family, which I did not. And that's one of the things I loved loved about going over uh, to his house all the time, which I did as often as possible. So I'd go over there in the morning. We'd play a game of ping pong. And we were so close and we knew each other so well that we'd play 100-point games of ping pong. We play ping pong so that, uh, and the scrum. We were so close, and we were so enmeshed in each other's lives. We knew each other so well, even in a way like physical, our physical instincts and our physical reactions. Uh, and we were both, I guess, I guess we were both athletic. He was athletic, in my own way, so was I. I was quick, and uh, had a sharp eye. Back in the day, right when I was a little kid, and we'd play games, uh, hundred point uh, ping pong games. So it was one hundred and one to ninety nine. You have to win by two points, um, 100 to 98, 101 to 99, 111 to 109, that kind of thing. That's how close we were. We played ping pong, and then we'd um, we'd walk to school past the creepy old cemetery and uh, go to our classes. And some We were in the same classes in some cases. In other cases, we weren't in different homerooms, but we had a couple of classes together. And um, For instance, we had a chemistry class in which we were both... Uh, uh, I don't know what you would call it. It's a student, like interns, we would clean up the uh, clean up afterwards. We were lab workers <laughs> in the chemistry class. We uh, we set everything out before the class started, and we cleaned up afterwards and mess around with things like to, uh, pretend that we were going to uh, do something with the uh, sulfuric acid. We would, but we were careful. We were careful. We weren't uh, weren't too out of line. And then we'd walk home, and when we got home from school, it's like 3, whatever it is, 3.15. So we walked a mile and a half past the uh, big old cemetery was there, then walked another uh, half a mile to school. So it's almost like two miles to the high school. In the afternoon, we would walk back together, talking constantly about everything, or not talking, or not talking. We could spend a lot of time silently as well as we knew each other. Um, It was a true deep friendship. And we'd walk home, and he'd stop, uh, we'd stop by his house, which was the first house. It was several houses down the block from me. His house was about six houses away down the block. And it was the first one when we were walking from the high school. Mine would have been the second one. And I'd go into his house. You know, we'd go into his... Um, into. There were two entrances to these little houses, one the front door, which people didn't use that much. And the other one, which people did use, was the kitchen door. And we would go in there, and... Um, His mother, who was a saint, she was like a saint. She was the true embodiment. She was my idea of what a Christian really was. This is growing up not knowing any Christians. She was the kindest person in the neighborhood. She was so kind and so sweet and so loving. And it was uh, like night and day with my mother. Uh, I never brought anybody home to my house. Never brought anybody home to my house. I wouldn't do a thing like that. My mother was too crazy, and the house didn't resemble a real house, and it didn't resemble a real family. But I'd go to his house, and his mother would get out milk and cookies, milk and cookies. Did you have a nice day at school today, she'd say to her son. And she'd include me, which I, for I was forever grateful to her. She would include me. Did you have a nice day? Did you have a good day? Um, yes. And it was like having an actual mother. And I didn't want to leave, but eventually, you know, he had to do his homework, and it got to be a little awkward. So I had to go back to my haunted house, and I did. So I did some homework, and I survived however I survived in that house. And then in the afternoons after we did our homework, let's say if there was enough light, let's say it's spring or early fall, we would uh, meet up again outside, and we would throw a ball back and forth endlessly, endlessly or play um, stoop ball. We would uh, throw a ball against the points of the stoop, the uh, brick stoops that we all, these buildings all had, and see how far the ball would go. Was it a home run? Was it a triple? We would get our uh, baseball cards, and we'd flip them, and uh, we would, uh, sometimes we'd, uh, you know, on on weekends, when they weren't away somewhere, when they weren't on a Saturday, now suddenly Sunday was church day, On a Saturday, he and I would uh, get on our bicycles or sometimes after school if it was warm out or sometimes uh, during summer vacation when they weren't away visiting family down south uh, and he was home. We would take long, long bike rides, long bike rides, and uh, go to all kinds of uh, different destinations, different, different places. And other times uh, when it was winter, uh, when when it was after school, and it was cold out maybe it was too cold to be hanging outside to throw snowballs or build snowmen or whatever else we were doing we'd hang out in his room and um just talk and when it was summertime like i say when 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 it was uh when when the weather was good when we didn't have to worry about uh staying out of the out of the cold what we did was we'd uh get on our bikes and ride, or we would uh, just lay around in the grass, lay around in the grass in my backyard, you know, or in his backyard, and just uh, look up at the sky and talk about everything, about anything, about everything. And this is why we were best friends. There was an understanding there. There was a kind of love there that uh, I did not experience in um, in any other friendship I've had Uh, until way until when I was older. And uh, when I think about Christmas, though, um, I especially associate my friend with Christmas because I used to go over to his house on Christmas and help him decorate the tree. I would help him decorate the tree. And his uh, family had this wonderful uh, tree that they decorated every year, a Christmas tree. Of course, there was no Christmas tree in my house. It was only Hanukkah. And uh, Hanukkah paled besides Christmas that's because um we didn't know about hanukkah we were a very uh we were not a very religious jewish family and so we weren't taught the depth and the meaning of a lot of our holidays so we didn't get the beauty and the depth and the spirituality of a lot of our holidays obviously hanukkah is a very powerful holiday but when we were kids we were growing up growing up in the general culture and it was um christmas was everything i mean the whole neighborhood uh, not the whole neighborhood but every every house that wasn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jewish, uh, had, um, you know, lights outside, uh, they had Christmas trees, they had special um, lights in the window, and uh, a couple of people had little nativity scenes. And I used to love to go over to his house because that's when the family was the most of, like a family. Uh, they, and I would help him decorate the tree. My grandmother frowned on this, of course, found it really, uh, just she used to shake her head what could she say, though? Because she knew I needed this family. She, I, I went over there, and his sister was there, and his brother was there, and his wonderful mother and his father, who I wasn't too crazy about. His father was, I think, a deacon in the local Baptist church, and he was very severe, given to corporal punishment, I believe, and very severe, a very severe guy. The mother, as sweet and soft and charitable and decent as any Christian uh, you would want to imagine to be. So um, so we'd decorate the tree, and since his father was a wholesale dealer in cotton, he had raw cotton, and we would put, very carefully, we would put cotton on top of every single branch. It took a long, long time to decorate this tree, but it was fun. And it looked just like snow had fallen on the tree. And all the lights, the old-fashioned Christmas tree lights, some of them probably be illegal right now. And um, then the, the presents, and on Christmas morning... I would go over to his house and um, and uh, open up presents with them, and and I think were they trying to convert me? I wonder, you know. I wonder when I look back on it after all these years, were they trying to convert me? Were they trying to save my soul? Um, I think they were trying to save my soul, but not necessarily for Christianity, uh, to convert to Christianity, but just to save my soul with love which I was not getting any of uh, back in my house or some twisted version of it. So just, they were just trying to save my soul. And I couldn't care less whether they were trying to convert me or not. I mean, what do I care? Um, and they even bought me a Christmas present. So that was uh, that was something I loved. And I would play with the presents. We'd open them up, and there was uh, Lincoln Logs. And there was—this is back in the day, of course, in the 50s—Cowboys and Indians— <laughs> And don't forget, also, these people came from down south. His father was from Texas. So um, cowboys and Indians, no problem. And we all had cowboys and Indians back in those days. Maybe even a cap gun with, uh, with, uh, with caps to put in it. This is the kind of thing that uh, people played with in the 50s. And you would especially expect this from people who were down south. You know, they were, there was no political correctness back in those days about this kind of thing, anyhow. And No understanding there was the total ignorance of how we had treated the indians and what these guns represented so that's the way it was and it was it was uh important it was an important thing for me in fact it was vital for me that he and i were friends and um the apex of this was was the was christmas and christmas morning and these days that we spent together it was um so every day we spent together we don't so we got together a couple of years, thanks, thanks to Facebook and the Internet. We got in touch again after a couple after like 50, 50 years or so. So for the last five years, he and I have been in touch. But he's not too communicative, and these days I'm not too communicative either. And um, But we write uh, an email once every couple of months and catch up with each other. I have a feeling that um, he may not be doing too well himself, that he's struggling with his own demons. And God knows I am. So uh, sometimes we write to each other and there's this hidden, there's this subtext, a hidden subtext. But how are you feeling? How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm a little slow these days, he says. Uh, uh, It takes me a long time to do things. I have trouble concentrating. Yeah, I know what that means. (laughs) I know what that means. Sounds like he's depressed. And I miss him. I miss his childhood. Uh, And I miss, uh, but I especially when I think of him as my best friend. I especially think of Christmas. In fact, uh, I had such a wonderful experience with him and with Christmas when I was a kid. And my family was so scattered and awful when I was uh, young in my house. And my whole family was so dysfunctional. And Hanukkah, like I say, uh, and any Jewish holiday, my grandmother conducted these rituals. But, uh, you know, after she died, they all disappeared. They all disappeared. And uh, we weren't ever really very religious again. I think what I'm going to do is take a short break, and uh, then we'll, uh, we'll come back and we'll talk some more. ¶¶ Yeah, this land was made for you and me, but you got to wonder about it now, right? Uh inevitably, you know, I've been talking about Trump uh non-stop for the last uh who knows several months. And uh there's no way to avoid talking about Trump. Uh but um now you see that uh I wonder I wonder now. I keep thinking of all the people that voted for Trump, voted uh I mean, he did lose the um General election, but was it close to three million votes? In fact, I think it. Uh, uh, he's made history, uh, relatively speaking, proportionally speaking, that he's a president who is uh, become who has become president, um, having lost uh, the popular vote by the most votes. Let me say that in English, if I can. Nobody has ever lost so many, uh, so much of the popular vote and become president. You know, uh, relatively speaking. So he is uh he's got he's got the opposite of what you would call a mandate. But it doesn't make any difference to him. And did it make any difference with George Bush, who did not have a mandate. You know, he um he also lost the uh popular election by um, many, many votes and uh he considered he had a mandate to go ahead and invade the whole world and do as what whatever he wanted to do. Uh the administration of Trump and Donald Trump himself they consider that they were elected in a landslide, a popular vote landslide. That's the way they're acting, as if the whole country uh, wants them to do whatever it is they want to do. And this land does not feel like our land anymore. It's not, it does not feel like my land. It does not feel like our land. It is clearly their land. Uh, I worry about this. This seems like the final triumph of, uh, of the rich and the military, the military-industrial complex has um, finally triumphed. This is what uh, Eisenhower warned everybody about uh, way back then. And um, he saw it coming, and he would know. He was on the inside of it. He was part of it, in fact. So he um, he warned everybody, and now it's come to pass. This stuff started with Reagan, and there is, there is a kind of a darkness that's settling over the land, as far as I'm concerned. The people that voted for Trump... Um, and helped to elect him, I think they're. Uh, if they're not already regretting, if, when they see who's, uh, who he's appointed, if they're not already regretting that they voted for him, they're going to live uh, and not live very well in Trump's America. They're going to live to really, really regret that they ever voted for this man, that they helped to elect him president, that they turned out for him. Uh, last I was reading in the paper yesterday, as flawed as this Obamacare stuff is, and this should be single payer, of course, this should just be, uh, as they have successfully shown in Europe, it's possible, uh, They should just be uh, Medicare for all. On the contrary, what they're going to do now is uh, Trump is going to roll back. And try to eliminate him, and the um, and the uh, Congress, the uh, Republican Congress, will try to roll back and even eliminate Obamacare. What they plan to substitute for it? Good luck to everybody. But I was reading um, in the paper yesterday that the highest enrollment rates that they've ever had occurred in the last couple of months, and are occurring now. There is something like twenty million people enrolled in this Obamacare program. Twenty million people who are covered by insurance who weren 't covered before or weren't covered adequately before, and um, i'm sure a lot of these people are trump voters or trump's people, and they are going to be this is the first thing that 's going to hit them right smack in the face when this thing gets rolled back and they suddenly find out that they don't they're not covered by preexisting conditions if it's eliminated or rolled back if uh if uh, children who are older are not covered there will be a lot of people who can't afford medical care who will get sick and who will die who will get sick and who will die because they couldn't afford uh because they can't afford medical care and these are a lot of these people are people who voted to get rid of the washington elites well we've never had such an elite government now as trump has appointed we've never had such an elite government he has appointed people who are going to get and and there are people who, um, you know, our air compared to other places like uh, our air and our water. In some places like Flint, it's uh, it's really falling. You know, it's like poisonous or falling apart. But generally speaking, in a lot of our larger cities, for instance, um, they are uh, they are there's much less pollution and much less uh, you know damage to the air and to the water than there are in many other large countries. And that's because other large countries uh, <clears throat> don't have any um, environmental protections against coal burning like in India or in China, where people are, uh, you know, dying over there. Where They can't see their hands in front of their faces on some days because of the uh, pollution. And you've got uh, Trump uh, appointing people to the EPA and uh, people to the Energy Department and people... Uh, you know, appointing somebody like Rex Tillerson, who's the head of ExxonMobil, to, uh, to be in charge. People who don't believe or say they don't believe in global warming, they don't believe in climate change, they're going to cut back all these rules. Our water is going to get more poisoned. Our, um, our air is going to get more poisonous. There's going to be more pollution in the air. There's going to be more illness and more sickness. And there's going to be less program- fewer programs to help people. And Medicare, a lot of people who are on Medicare and Social Security, both of these programs, a lot of people on Medicare and Social Security voted for Trump. They voted for Trump. What were they thinking, or were they thinking at all? Did they imagine? They, they just bought something. He's a con man. The same way he conned these people at Trump University, this fucking fraudulent uh, real estate university uh, where he had to settle for $25 million um, you know, with people. Uh, in order not to get prosecuted and embarrassed as the incoming president, he conned the electorate. He conned uh, a smaller part, a minority of the electorate, but especially in, in states where uh, you know where they put him over the top in the Electoral College. I don't really understand the Electoral College. Uh, I wouldn't lie to you and tell you that I understood it, but it seems to me something that needs to be um, radically adjusted or thrown out. Uh, the I think the popular vote would be fine with me. So Trump and all these people are going to get rid of regulations that protect us, food and drug regulations, all in the name of business, all in the name of corporations, all these billionaires, all their friends who are billionaires, all these people who sit on uh, interlocking directorates. As I said before, the Secretary of State is the head of ExxonMobil, the head of ExxonMobil, one of the great polluters in the entire world. And uh Trump and his people are going to reverse things or get rid of things that it took decades and decades and decades of uh, of intelligence of uh, of awareness to become knowledgeable about this so that we uh, we tried to understand the dangers uh, to our environment of all this uh, of all this um, carbon fuel burning of carbon fuel um, for instance uh, obama just recently as a, an executive order i don't know why it's entirely just up to him but i guess it is uh, you know canceled the ability for people to drill off certain parts of the atlantic coast and certain parts of the arctic this is for the this is for environmental reasons and uh to keep from polluting the water and to keep um to keep the uh, shorelines clean and uh not polluted to prevent oil spills And somebody like Trump could come in if it's an executive order and completely reverse that instantly. So what I'm saying in the aggregate here is you've got Trump appointing people like Rick Perry to the Energy Department. You've got people who uh, don't believe in – he's appointing somebody to the Labor Department who doesn't believe in protections for workers or minimum wage. So many millions of these people who voted for Trump are going to uh to see whatever little they have whatever they little they were able to get over the over the years uh clean air clean water uh protection at work um, equal pay for equal work uh you know minimum wage all these things will disappear and get rolled back and then who are they going to complain to trump and his people will somehow manage to blame it on the democrats and so, and since people are buying What he's selling, maybe they'll believe that. But it's him and his people. And there's a darkness settling over the land. A darkness is settling over the land. And when there's a darkness settling over the land and uh, there seems like oppression everywhere, people look for a savior. People look for a savior. They want a savior. And um, often uh, this savior is somebody with extreme points of view. Somebody with extreme points of view. The world is an increasingly dangerous place and people domestically people were upset because everybody was losing their jobs because jobs were being shipped off by the very corporations uh whose heads Donald Trump is appointing to head his uh various departments and uh and um you know agencies um, these people have been shipping jobs overseas to other places and it's not. It's not necessarily the immigrant. It's not the immigrants that have taken away jobs. It is automation that's taken away jobs. It's automation and robotics, and that has taken away jobs. And the only way to do something about this, if anything can be done about it, is to train people to uh, to learn how to do these uh, these new technologies to new to do. To, and this is a very difficult thing. It would take a real dedication and a real complex understanding and study and a real dedication to uh, to to uh, this this whole uh, understanding of what's what's required of what's required for um, for the future but uh, Trump doesn't understand this and his people don't understand this what they want is they want to uh, they want to ship jobs and they want to they want to uh you know they they want to continue shipping jobs overseas they're not going to stop doing this in other words all the foxes are in charge now of the uh of the chicken coop and of the hen house and this is a bad time for everybody now uh people thought that uh they needed a savior and Donald Trump came along and had all these simple solutions to all these problems simple solutions to all these problems and uh during, uh, during hard times, during hard times in the world, there have always been simple solutions to problems. You've got, uh, you know, during the time of the Romans, uh, Christ came along. Speaking of Christmas, Christ came along. And, um, you know, uh, during uh, the time of uh, the British oppression in uh, India, Gandhi came along. And during the time of the oppression uh, of uh, black people in this country, finally Martin Luther King came along. And we've had these saviors. We've had these saviors. And if we're lucky, though, if we're lucky, these saviors are peaceful people. These messages, which are rare, these messages of Christ and, um, and Gandhi and Martin Luther King are messages of peace and love, messages of peace and love. Because when you look at the world right now, the world seems to be consumed in violence and hatred. And you got a guy like Trump was really um, a hateful man who was filled with with hate, and his solution to things are based on hate. Um, And this often are the kinds of saviors that people choose. People chose Hitler when they were down and out in Germany, when the oppression uh, was so severe, when people were starving to death and had no jobs and had no food to eat, and their money was worthless, and uh, they were looking for something to save them. And what they found was uh, an insane dictator. And uh, in this country now, when people are without jobs, when they see everything is changing, the country is becoming browner and blacker than it ever has before. There are white people in this country are becoming a minority. Um, The the increase in... um, in Muslims and in the increase in um, in Asians, the increase in Latinos, especially uh, the country is changing in a way that nobody ever imagined who uh, who lived here twenty thirty fifty uh, uh you know sixty years ago when they were growing up or when they were coming to coming of age, they never imagined that this wouldn't be a white Christian country, that this wouldn't be a white Christian country. And where people uh, always had a job that they could count on, and where uh, they would have the highest status. Status means something, I guess, to people. So if you were white and you were a Christian, you always had the highest status. And now the country is changing, it's becoming a place where not everybody is a Christian, and not everybody, uh, certainly not everybody, is white. And this is terrifying people. All this has terrified people so much they elected a demagogue. They elected somebody who said he was going to save everybody by simple, extreme expedients. And these simple, extreme expedients are, um, are violent, are aggressive, are based on, love, uh, based on hate versus love, are based on uh, black and white. These are not people who—Trump and his people are—Trump as a savior is not the savior of peace, of inclusion. He is not in any way the spirit of Christmas. The Christmas card, I got a Christmas card. I, I was talking about my best friend for a while earlier. I got a Christmas card from them, and um, from him and his family, and uh, there was a message written on the inside saying that uh, in the era of this, um, in this time of disastrous polarization and division between people and love and hate, we think about the time of uh, of Christmas, when it's a time when when love is supposed to triumph, a time when love is supposed to triumph, when we're supposed to think of somebody who was born, although like any savior, his message was simple, love one another, turn the other cheek, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, people who came after him were severe. You know, Paul and the other Christians who formed the church were severe. But the original message of Christ, which is something I always loved in the Bible um, and um, which uh, drew me to Christianity, um, the original messages of Christ were based on love and kindness and helping other people. And when I think back on Christmas now and I think back on on those wonderful Christmases I spent with my friend and his family, I, uh, I wonder where our Christ is coming from now now it 's dangerous to be um, it 's dangerous to be a person of love in the world it 's dangerous to bring a message of love to everybody to preach love can be very dangerous. Uh, look what happened to Christ look what happened to um look what happened to um, look what happened to Gandhi look what happened to Martin Luther King. people who preach a message of love um, are often pl- placed in great danger, and these three people were uh, were murdered for their uh, for their preaching of love. I mean, for other reasons too. Uh, they were threatening the status quo. But uh, when I think back of my friend and the wonderful Christmas mornings that we had together, and the fact that his family was Christian and had a message of Christianity, like I say, his father probably had um, a kind of a, an aggressive um, evangelical uh, preachy strict rules message of Christianity, the Old Testament version of Christianity, which was uh, tough guy stuff, you know, spare the rod and spoil the child. But his mother, this is, the, this is my experience of Christianity, his mother was, was the Christianest person I ever met, Christianest. <laughs> Somebody was sick in the neighborhood, she would be over there giving them something, delivering uh, soup that she made, or saying, could she help anybody? It didn't matter if they were Christian or Jewish or what didn't make any difference to her. That's the way she was. And she's the person who I ran across when I was young. And that family was what I ran across in their practice of Christianity. And it seems to me that right now we're at a time in the world when, uh, yes, we have, to, we have to resist and we have to be aware of what's going on. We have to demonstrate. Um, uh, but we also, when I get this Christmas card from my old friend from my childhood, and I see the appeal to peace and to love, I am, uh, I am thinking to myself that uh, where is our Christ now? We don't need somebody who's going to rise up. We need people who are strong and who are resistant and who are tough. Yes, we need these people, but we also need people of peace. Maybe there will be a turn towards uh, religion of a peaceful nature. Who knows? Maybe there will be. Maybe the real message, the original message of Christianity will come out. I don't know. I hope it does. But it seems to me right now it would not be amiss to offer during this time of uh, Christmas, and Hanukkah is here too, this religious time, a message of peace and a message that we can maybe pray a little bit. Uh, maybe you don't pray, maybe you do. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But maybe right now uh, a prayer, and uh, a prayer, um, you know, aside from... Um, aside from whoever it is that you pray to or whatever it is you pray to, doesn't even make any difference. Maybe that's in order right now. Maybe that's something we need. We need to be tough, and we also need to be filled with love at the same time. That's a tall order, but that's what we need.
1: The birds, they sing. again I heard them say don't dwell on what has passed away or what is In high places say their prayers out loud But they've summoned, they've summoned up a thundercloud They're gonna hear from me Ring the bell that's still Yeah. How the night gets it